The Corbett Report is brought to you by you. Your support makes The Corbett Report possible. Sign up for the subscriber newsletter or purchase a DVD at corbettreport.com support. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com We are not shy. We are not sorry about what we have offered for our religion. And we have sacrificed. And we are still ready for more sacrifices till the victory of Islam. This was the first the world would hear of Ayman al-Zawahiri. But it would not be the last. After what the Egyptian government had done to him and had done to his compatriots, nothing was illegal, nothing was off the table. Anything could be justified in order to achieve victory. A hatred had woken in Zawahiri, a hatred that 20 years later would shake the world. for Ayman Zawahiri would have been the greatest success ever. Without Al-Zawahiri, we would not have had 9-11. The world would have been different. I think it's very important that we understand the likes of Ayman Zawahiri. And we also understand what created him and how he thinks and what he wants to do. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 15th day of February 2013. Welcome to episode 258 of the Corbett Report podcast, Know Your Terrorists, I'm in Al-Zawahiri. What we've just been watching is a clip from your standard History Channel fair, giving the standard line on Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri and his past background experiences and what made him into the terrorist mastermind that he supposedly is right up until the current day. And it is very much the standard fare we would expect. Something along the lines of Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri was born into a rich Muslim family in Cairo, Egypt in 1951, was radicalized as a Muslim, and blah 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 9-11. Something along those lines anyway. Uh, but to, in contradiction to that tendency to elide over the very important parts of Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri's biography, I think we have to follow along the words of that History Channel documentary and to actually and truthfully pose the question of who Dr. Zawahiri is and what really does motivate him, because it truly is important to know exactly what he plans to do and who he's working for. And the answer, as I'm sure will probably not surprise many of the regular listeners of this podcast, is quite different than that picture that is generally painted for him in your standard History Channel slash New York Times slash BBC News official establishment uh, reporting and history. So let's start in first by grounding ourselves in what the official story is and how it uh, generally is put forward. So we will dip a little bit further into that very same History Channel documentary to find out some of the standard fare about the youthful radicalization of Ayman al-Zawahiri as a young student joining the uh, first being acquainted with the works of Said Qutb and then becoming part of the outlawed Muslim Brotherhood under Nasser 
and then becoming radicalized under Sadat and eventually participating in Sadat's assassination. So let's watch just a few minutes of this History Channel documentary. Zawahiri was born in Cairo, Egypt, in 1951. It was very intellectual. It was uh, apparently a very good uh, a son, very respectful. Zawahiri comes from a very elitist family within Egypt, a distinguished family. His grandfather had been a prominent uh, imam at a Cairo mosque. His other grandfather on his maternal side had been ambassador for Egypt to Pakistan, and his father was a professor of pharmacology. He grew up in an incredibly intellectually stimulating environment, and he was very much politically aware right from the beginning. Zawahiri was born into turbulent times. A year after his birth, Army Colonel Gamal Abdel Nasser seized power in a military coup. Nasser believed that Egypt needed to modernize. With the support of the army, he enforced a secular agenda. But many Egyptians opposed Nasser's policy. They called for an Islamic state and a return to Islamic values under Sharia, or Islamic law. Even as a schoolboy, Zawahiri was sympathetic to the Islamic point of view. Zawahiri becomes known as a precocious youngster. He's known for being smart, for being quick, and, and being an intellectual. But he does take on Islam. He, he does become an Islamist over time. President Nasser did not tolerate dissent and cracked down hard on his religious rivals. After the, uh, the Nasser revolution uh, in 1952, uh, there is no democracy, there is no freedom. Indiscriminate mass arrests shook Egyptian society. And uh, I, I think that was the first and the earliest a bitter taste as Awahiri was subjected to. Nasser suppressed the Islamic opposition, but he could not stop the schoolboy Zawahiri reading about their ideas. One philosopher in particular was set to change his life, Said Qutb. Qutb's ideas were a revolutionary combination of nationalism and fundamentalist Islam. He understood Western culture to be something that steered Muslims away from the true path, and Western culture as being something that invariably would destroy Islam if allowed to. He doesn't talk about justice, oppression, human rights, civil liberties, but rather he talks about what is being Islamic, what is being un-Islamic. So this is how the world is seen. You are either with us or against us. Qutb's ideas were an inspiration to Zawahiri. In time, they would convince him that it was his duty to fight for Islam. 
Now, as I say, this is all just the standard biographical fare that you will get if you look on Wikipedia or go to the New York Times or the History Channel or any of the other mainstream sources of information on on current events and people in the news. This is the type of story that you will find about Ayman al-Zawahiri and his roots and the process through which he increasingly became radicalized through the, uh, the decades growing up in Egypt. And generally, we will arrive at the point in uh, the late 1970s where Anwar Sadat, Nasser's successor, signs the Camp David Accords with Menachem Begum, uh, creating the uh, accord with Israel, and as the story goes, signing his own death warrant amongst the radical Islamists in Egypt who are already unhappy with Sadat and are only increasingly so after that point. And so it was that Sadat was assassinated during a military procession at, at which he was presiding over, and one of the people that was rounded up in the wake of that shooting was Ayman al-Zawahiri. And this is the first point at which Zawahiri becomes quite literally and quite vocally and quite, uh, quite out in the open for all the world to see a spokesman for radical Islamic jihad. Those who carried out the assassination were a group of army officers who were a part of Islamic Jihad. They were immediately arrested and the regime launched a massive manhunt for those behind the plot. But the effect of the assassination on the Egyptian people was not what Zawahiri had hoped for. That night, Cairo remained calm. The masses failed to rise up. And in the following weeks, Zawahiri and many other conspirators were arrested. The assassins were tried immediately and executed. But then, nearly 300 Islamists, including Zawahiri, were put on trial in a pavilion in Cairo's industrial exhibition park. It was agreed that Zawahiri would be their spokesman. Now we want to speak to the whole world. Who are we? Who are we? Why did they bring us here? And what we want to say about the first question? We are Muslims. We are Muslims who believed in their religion, in its broad meaning, as both an ideology and practice. We believed in our religion both as an ideology and practice, and hence we tried our best to establish this Islamic state and Islamic society. La ilaha illallah! La ilaha illallah! La ilaha illallah! La ilaha illallah! Zawahiri, the man is an aristocrat. He comes from a, a major Egyptian-Saudi family, and uh, he thinks that, you know, he, he, is, the, he is a visionary. And uh, the means do not matter, just as in Lenin, I mean, revolution in one country or revolution worldwide. He was convinced that this was, uh, this was a means to, to mobilize the masses, that he, they had tried something, that it had not worked. And he felt that, you know, the masses uh, were still under the spell of ideology, the ideology of America, and he's looking for a new strategy. At the trial, Zawahiri was sentenced to three years in prison, along with many others of Islamic Jihad. 
He was taken to cells behind the Police National Museum, where, like Syed Qutb, he was tortured. And under this torture, he began to interpret Qutb's theories in a far more radical way. That clip, of course, coming from Adam Curtis's The Power of Nightmares, which we'll talk a little bit more about next week. But that, at any rate, is, as I say, basically the core backbone of the Ayman al-Zawahiri backstory that is generally given in the broad overview of Dr. Zawahiri's biography. And that takes us more or less to the point at which things start to get a little bit hazy. There's a few biographical details usually inserted in there to cover the 80s and 90s. And then, as I say, blah, 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 9-11. Well, let's start taking a look at that period between that imprisonment after and torture after the assassination of Sadat and the eventual uh, formation of Al-Qaeda, whatever that organization really is. So let's start taking a look at some of the interesting pieces that are left out of this story, because it should strike one as very bizarre that there are key and fundamental details of Zawahiri's backstory that are almost never even touched upon in any mainstream account, and when and if they are, they're always left vague and unsourced, unconfirmed, and ultimately unknown. And these are not small details, these are actually quite large details. So in order to demonstrate this, I want to draw your attention to Wikipedia, which of course, as we know in this internet age, tends to be the place to go to get the establishment opinion on on whatever the case may be, whatever uh, you're looking into. So in the case of Zawahiri, his bio biography, biography in the, the Wikipedia entry is quite interesting because of some of the details that are a little bit vague, a little bit left hanging. For example, if you turn to the section on political asylum in the Zawahiri Wikipedia entry, you'll find that Ayman al-Zawahiri has both applied for and in some cases was granted political asylum in various countries. Asylum was granted for al-Zawahiri by Denmark in 1991, and unconfirmed sources indicate he also received the same from Switzerland in 1993. Hmm, unconfirmed sources are indicating he received political asylum in 1993. Now stop for a moment to ask yourself why presumably the most important terrorist in the world, at the very least the one who is nominally in charge of this nominal Al-Qaeda group, which is nominally the enemy in what is nominally known as the Great War on Terror, which is the defining war of our age, why there is so little detail that is known about basic easily confirmable facts, like whether or not he was granted asylum by the Swiss government in 1993. Why is this left as an unconfirmed source indicating that he was granted asylum? Why is that Wikipedia entry, that particular part of that Wikipedia entry, doesn't even have a citation? It's not even saying you saying to you what unconfirmed, or where this unconfirmed source allegedly indicated that he allegedly was granted political asylum by Switzerland in 1993. Absolutely Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. No sources on this, and uh, no way to, to back this up, no way to confirm this. No, one's, no one in the entire world has found a way to ask the Swiss government for records of whether or not they granted asylum to al-Zawahiri. And it can't be that important anyway. Well, as bizarre as a little blips like that that uh, tend to elide over large parts of Zawahiri's backstory are, it gets even more bizarre. So let's back up for a moment. Of course, the story goes that after he was released in 19, 1980s uh, in Egypt, 
He eventually went on to get arrested and jailed once again, this time for weapons dealing by Egypt in 1984. And then he ends up in Afghanistan in the mid to late 1980s. Uh, as so many other Islamic radicals did, they gravitated towards Afghanistan, which was the center of the jihadi world there in, in the 1980s, in the, the central defining fight of that era. So uh, he went to Afghanistan, where he met Osama bin Laden. That turned out to be a fortuitous uh, happenstance that they met, because their relationship ended up blossoming in a, in a terrorist way. And uh, the, his organization, the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, ultimately ended up merging with Osama bin Laden's organization into the Al-Qaeda of the 1990s, that and blah, 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 9-11. Uh, so that's the story, and somewhere along that route, Zawahiri was traipsing around Europe, getting asylum in Denmark and maybe Switzerland. Uh, we can't tell. There's no way to know. And um, and this is all, as you can understand, this is usually left out of the Al-Zawahiri overview of his story, because these are just unimportant details. Well, how about this particular detail? This is This is extremely interesting. So again, from this Wikipedia entry, uh, talking about Russia, it says, At some point in 1994, Al-Zawahiri was said to have become a phantom, but is thought to have traveled widely to Switzerland and Sarajevo. A fake passport he was using shows that he traveled to Malaysia, Taiwan, Singapore, and Hong Kong. On December 1st, 1996, Ahmad Salama Mabruk and Mahmoud Hisham Al-Hanawi, both carrying false passports, accompanied Al-Zawahiri on a trip to Chechnya, where they hoped to re-establish the faltering al-Jihad. Their leader was traveling under the name Abdullah Imam Mohammed Amin and trading on his medical cred credentials for legitimacy. The group switched vehicles three times, but were arrested within hours of entering Russian territory and spent five months in a prison awaiting trial. The trio pled innocence, maintaining their disguise and having other Al-Jihad members from Bavari Sea send the Russian authorities pleas for leniency for their merchant colleagues who had been wrongly arrested. And Russian Member of Parliament Nadir Kachilev echoed the pleas for their speedy release as Al-Jihad members Ibrahim Idaris and Tharwat Salah Shihata traveled to Dagestan to plead for their release. Shihata received permission to visit the prisoner prisoners and is believed to have smuggled them $3,000, which was later confiscated from their cell, and to have given them a letter which the Russians didn't bother to translate. In April 1997, the trio were sentenced to six months and were subsequently released a month later and ran off without paying their court-appointed attorney Abdulhalik Abdusalamov his $1,800 legal fee, citing their poverty. Shahada was sent on to Chechnya, where he met Ibn Khattab. What a bizarre entry. So, somehow, in the late 96, early 97, uh, um, Zawahiri and his colleagues, a couple of his jihadi friends, spent upwards of six months in a Russian prison and were eventually released without anyone in Russia ever figuring out really who he was or what his significance was. And now, this is not only a total load of BS, it gets even more stupid than that. Let's turn to a real source of information to, to find out some, a little bit more on that story. We'll turn to History Commons, of course, the terror timeline, which uh, I recommend to everyone, historycommons.org, where you can find all sorts of information. So please type in Zawahiri into their search engine and uh, just go through the incredible list of entries they have. 
documenting at the very least the official story of Zawahiri in every single detail. But let's turn to the entry December 1st, 1996 to June 1997. Russian arrest of Zawahiri brings Islamic Jihad and Al-Qaeda closer together. Ayman Zawahiri, leader of Islamic Jihad and effective number two leader of Al-Qaeda, travels to Chechnya with two associates. His associates are Ahmad Salama Mabruk, head of Islamic Jihad's cell in Azerbaijan, and Mahmoud Hisham Al-Hanawi, a well-traveled militant. Chechnya was fighting to break free from Russian rule and achieved a ceasefire and de facto independence earlier in the year. Zawahiri hopes to establish new connections there. However, on December 1st, 1996, he and his associates are arrested by Russian authorities as they try to cross into Chechnya. Zawahiri is carrying four passports, none showing his real identity. The Russians confiscate Zawahiri's laptop and send it to Moscow for analysis. But apparently, they never translate the Arabic documents on it that could have revealed who he really is. Though some Russian investigators suspect Zawahiri is a big fish, they can't prove it. He and his two associates are released after six months. Now, hold on a second. Let's back up this ship just for a minute and take a look at that, uh, that thing we just saw floating by. The Russians not only were holding Zawahiri, they had his laptop, they had him in the cell for six months, and they did not bother to translate anything on his laptop. In fact, as some accounts put it, they weren't able to translate his laptop because they weren't able to source an Arabic translator. And, and look at that, even the way it's worded here in this History Commons uh, entry. They, the Russian investigators suspect that he's a big fish, but they can't prove it. Even though they have his laptop right there with all of these documents that really do show who he is and who is, what his connections are, but they don't bother to or can't in the whole of Russia locate an Arabic translator in the six months that they have him in custody. This is, at the very least, uh, a smelly load of horse manure. And uh, at the very worst, this is, of course... Uh, just a part of the games that are played at this level with these terrorists who are obviously protected assets. And, well, in what manner is this? does this, does this information point? Obviously, this uh, Zawahiri is someone that the intelligence agencies were aware of. Obviously, we don't believe that Russia had him in their grasp for six months and just didn't bother to find out who he was. They didn't bother to translate or couldn't translate the uh, documents on his laptop. There is something very, very big going on here. And in order to really understand at base what's going on here, well, you might have noticed in that entry, for example, that it points out that Mabruk is the head of the Islamic Jihad cell in Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan, that seems like an important location. And anyone who's been following our recent interview series with Sibel Edmonds on Gladio and Gladio Plan B, i.e. the Islamic radicalization branch of uh, Gladio, which is being run through the Pentagon and through NATO, uh, will will probably be familiar by now with Azerbaijan and at least uh, some of its role in this Gladio Plan B. So that should set some alarm bells ringing off. And if they did, well, congratulations, because you're on the right track. So it was in this context that I specifically asked Sibel in our most recent interview, which was conducted earlier today for me here in Japan, and which is currently up on CorbettReport.com. This is the third hour of our conversation on Gladio, 
please go and listen to it. Please spread the word about this interview series. It is the most important interviews I have ever conducted. And although it is now, by now, I hope familiar to listeners of the Corbett Report and people who visit BoilingFrogsPost.com, I'm very disheartened to note that almost zero other coverage in any of the other alternative media. So apparently Sibel Edmonds, FBI whistleblower, and all the incredible information she's bringing out about Turkey and about Azerbaijan and the Central Asia Caucasus region and its part in Operation uh, Gladio Part Plan B and all of this incredible information is largely being ignored and swept under the rug. Well, I hope all of you out there can do something about spreading this, but let's turn to a at least a little section of the, this interview that we conducted earlier today talking about Zawahiri and if he really was this big mastermind terrorist and was being held by Russia for six months and they ended up letting him go, what was this really about and who is Zawahiri after all? Because as we're told, this is the real brains behind Al-Qaeda. This is the man who really radicalized uh, Osama bin Laden and convinced him that the jihad struggle had to be spread around the world. So even by the official narrative, this is really the biggest of the big fish in this war on terror. And yet he has this amazing ability to waltz in and out of countries all around Europe and to be held by the Russians for six months and then released and to basically act with such impunity. Who is he really and who is he really working for? I'm working right now on a podcast episode about Ayman al-Zawahiri. Uh, he has come up in our conversation before, um, and you mentioned, for example, that uh, Zawahiri was really the operational brains behind uh, the Al-Qaeda network to the extent that that you know, exists, and that bin Laden was something of a, a puppet or a serviceable pliant billionaire to supply some of the, the resources for that organization. I would be interested to hear anything that you have to say to fill in on Zawahiri, his background, how he plays into this, and uh, the process by which he radicalized bin Laden or whatever it is that uh, that the, the theory is. Sure. Uh, the FBI side of information gathering where you get to see if you, you are there and if you have the clearance and you have all those tapes the specific file operation for FBI that I said started in mid to late 1996 uh, and it went all the way till after 9-11. This is when we talked about Chatla. And again, I had lightly mentioned the uh, the preparation and the semi-diversion uh, uh, to Plan B during the Balkans, uh, you know, conflict in mid-1990s. So this is when... Ayman Zawahiri's name and Ayman Zawahiri's uh, activities show up a lot within the FBI files, counterintelligence operations. And again, not as Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is never, ever, ever mentioned there as Mujahideen and not even connected in most of these operations to Bin Laden. It means just Ayman Zawahiri. And Ayman Zawahiri in Turkey, a lot, okay? Ayman Zawahiri in Bulgaria, a lot, but working with the Turkish arm of NATO and with NATO. Ayman Zawahiri in Azerbaijan and meetings within U.S. military attache in Azerbaijan when Ayman Zawahiri is meeting with high-level U.S. and Turkish officials 
both officials, officials also with NATO titles, okay? So this is the Ayman Zawahiri we had all the way until 9-11, okay? Uh, in one of the meetings within the mili U.S. military attaché in Baku, Azerbaijan, is the meeting where, in addition to these high-level officials, you had two uh, high-level Saudi officials. But those Saudi officials had jobs in the United States. One of them was in charge of the Saudi intelligence office in the United States. The other one was high-level embassy person uh, in Saudi. So the meeting that took place, these people from United States, so the Saudis didn't go from Saudi Arabia there. They went from the United States in Baku, and there were some other meetings there too. And this is when, again, if you look at it, in 1997, 1998, several meetings took place in Baku. This is after the assassination attempt by Abdullah Chatlu against Aliyev. Uh, and as I said, a lot of trips and a lot of um, activities in Turkey, Ayman Zawahiri. I read this is not part of the FBI of his presence in Switzerland, which I didn't even know. So you have this guy traveling, not in Afghanistan or Egypt. He's in Turkey, Bulgaria, Azerbaijan, Switzerland, and 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 Bin Laden. And I have said this in the past eleven years since my case. And I said we always dealt with Bin Laden's plural. There were several Bin Laden family members people with Bin Laden last name that worked directly with the Saudi embassy here in the United States. They directly worked with uh, Fethullah Gulen and they would go for an official opening of the mosque. You know, when you uh, cut the bow with the scissors and the Turkish prime minister is there and they are clapping, is this mosque open, financed supposedly by Saudis and Fethullah Gulen, but actually the order and everything, the direction of that financing came from the United States, NATO. Uh, so you see that a lot. Now, another interesting thing with Ayman Zawahiri during this period, and you will see a very, very brief mentioning of this, is his arrest by the Russians. And FSB arrested Ayman Zawahiri and they put him in jail. They kept him there for six months. Now, Ayman Zawahiri supposedly was carrying several passports. However, according to all these documented evidence, various articles, he carried this laptop computer filled with information. Well, the information we are talking about here during this time would be U.S. NATO operations that Ayman Zawahiri was carrying it out for the United States, for NATO. A lot of people, they're going to say conspiracy theorists. No, it was not... They have gone as far as because so much has been leaked with CIA. Sure, sometimes we look the other way. It is a lie. It's absolutely false. It was not that so-called back then Al-Qaeda, as they refer to them today, Mujahideen Zawahiri. It wasn't that they were carrying out some operation that was convenient to us in Bulgaria, in Yugoslavia, and, and with the Chechens, and we look the other way. That is false. They, they're commanders were the United States and NATO. They took the order. They implemented. They were not, we are not talking about parallel work. No, we are not. We are not talking about convenient alliances. No, we are talking about 
directly working and directly being answerable, answerable to certain faction of U.S. government and, and NATO, a certain faction of NATO. If you were to go and say 90% of people who work for NATO, they're not involved in this. It's a special division within NATO that includes the Turkish division of NATO, Romania, believe me or not, today. Anyhow, uh, so according to the stories, Ayman Zawahiri is in jail, FSB, okay, and this is mid-1996, uh, 1997, they confiscate his laptop. He's there for six months, and the FSB and Russians are unable to get these Arabic and a lot of these documents translated because they have no capabilities or translator in the country, in entire Russia, okay, to, as supposedly this, this laptop was loaded. Because of that, they let him go. And that right there tells you that how much Russians must know and what happened after that. Did they tag Zawahiri with their own FSB agents saying, let him go and we'll tag him because we know who he's working for. He's working for the United States of America, for NATO, okay, as is obvious. And we'd rather him be out there and tag him then keep him in jail here because we want to find out more. Well, of course, you would think that the U.S. actors won't be dumb and say, why in the world did they release the Wahiri? And the question becomes this cat and mouse games and, and how did it develop between the two? But I always mention and I tell people and I say, look, this is the Soviet Union that we spent trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars fighting that gigantic beast. You know, they can go to the, you know, almost to the moon and have nuclear. They, that Soviet Union, FSB, is the, during this time is the new KGB. They were the same actors that we talk about. They were incapable of even finding one translator <laughs> in the entire country <laughs> or their intelligence. But this is the official narrative from the United States, from the mainstream media, whether it's the United Kingdom or the United States. But... It would be very interesting to know how much they were able to tag and find out because if what they are saying is correct and if that laptop was loaded, FSB had in their possession the manual and they knew who was Zawahiri's real bosses. And that would be U.S. NATO Gladio Plan B. And again, that tells you another clue in there how much Russians know about this. And if they were tagging him, if they were aware of all this stuff, you would think they would use the opportunity and put out so much information, especially after 9-11, and say, you know what, United States, this is your real face. You're telling this to your public. But look, the final meeting you had right before 9-11, no, not the final, because things continued. In fact, I'm in touch with some high-level people who have retired from Pentagon. One of them was a whistleblower. But they're saying... Most likely, Zawahiri's current position is in that region. You're looking at either Dagestan or Azerbaijan. He's not in Pakistan currently. And even if you were to go to Pakistan, it would be for trip and it would be a safe trip for him. And as you know, we don't like to capture any of these people live, uh, alive. We like to the mystery to remain. Nobody has talked. None of these so-called Al Qaeda's ever talked, or they are drugged to death, so they are zombies like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. That, you know, he comes there, and even if he talks, are you going to believe this guy who's been in <laughs> injected and, and, and waterboarded and hypnotized or whatever? But we don't capture these guys alive because imagine if these guys were to talk or they were to show documents of what kind of, what kind of work they did and who did they 
work for and i'm still waiting uh to hear from uh, from from people in russia people from russia i hope that we have uh, retired fsbs who say you know what let's put it out there or we may have some of these Turkish generals and say, well, we have already told the Turkish people through all these articles and everything what's going on. Now maybe we need to uh, uh, send some of this information and try to get this information out in the United States. I don't know if besides Corbett Report, if they would have any other outlets. Because if, even if they were to give all the documents to New York Times or Washington Post, wouldn't see the light of day. Well, I, I understand that the story of them not being able to translate the documents on his laptop is complete BS. Um, and I guess we can speculate that perhaps Russia is trying to use this information, keep it as leverage, track some of these people and, and, and do that. But for the life of me, I, I don't understand Zawahiri's motivation in this. If he is directly, knowingly working for, expressly for the US NATO Gladio operation, why would he be so? And, uh, and, I mean, uh, uh, if for people who don't know his background, supposedly he was uh, he was radicalized by uh, Saeed Qutb. He uh, was imprisoned as part of the uh, the roundup after the assassination of Sadat. He was tortured there and be started right. founded Egyptian Islamic Jihad, and then eventually went to Afghanistan where he met Bin Laden. So this is the background supposedly of this Islamic radical. Supposedly is the best way to put it, James, because uh, even. If you were to take it apart, what you just said about Anwar Sadat's assassination, we don't have a straight story on Anwar Sadat's assassination. And currently, nobody uh, is able to hear what, uh, you know, Husni Mubarak has to say. Because if you look at Zawahiri and with that kind of background, and you look at how many times he went to jail and how many times he was released, one of the first questions you would ask is, especially with countries like Egypt and Turkey, if you're really anti-government, if you really are what they're saying you are, you don't even make it to jail, man. You are taken out. You know, you disappear. There are tens of thousands of people in Turkey who have disappeared. Same thing. There are thousands of people in Egypt the real ones who have disappeared, who have been assassinated, who have been shot to death. But this guy, he's been in and out, in and out. Even look at, like, if you look at timeline, and, and a lot of them have, like, conflicting timeline, he's been in and out. So that alone should tell you why was he out there? Why was he taken care of? That kind of a dangerous man who was radicalized, who supposedly took part in Anwar Sadat's, uh, you know, assassination well, while we had his basically VP there that organ I mean you really got to look at that and see how much of it is just smoke because it doesn't add up does this at least start to put some of the pieces of this puzzle together for you I certainly hope it does and once again we have to step back and really take stock of what it is we are learning here right from the person who was working with the documents themselves in the FBI. This is not a small deal. This is a huge deal. We have a whistleblower telling us, directly telling us, that Ayman al-Zawahiri was not just coincidentally kind of working in a relationship of convenience with, with NATO or part of this Gladio Plan B. It wasn't just sort of tangentially related. They weren't puppeteering him. They were directly controlling and ordering Zawahiri 
during this period in the late 1990s, leading right up to 9-11. He was directly working for NATO and the section of the Pentagon dealing with this Gladio Plan B. And this is coming again directly from an FBI whistleblower. Hello, people. This is monumental information that we are receiving here about one of the key figures in this entire war on terror directly working for NATO and the Pentagon. This is, again, it cannot be stressed how important this information is and how much this blows the entire story of 9-11 and all of this war on terror right out of the water. So, Again, we have to start taking this information and putting these pieces together, and we have to start interrogating this backstory of Ayman al-Zawahiri because they haven't written this character out of the play yet, like they did with Osama bin Laden and feeding him to the fishes. Ayman al-Zawahiri is still, apparently, this mastermind terrorist boogeyman at large, and just like Osama bin Laden was that terrorist boogeyman who was risen from from the grave every now and then to spook America into voting this way or that in whatever presidential race, or scaring people about uh, global warming as uh, as Al-Qaeda has done in recent years, uh, laughably enough, go check it out, it's it's true. Um, but now Zawahiri is is still out there and still occasionally sending out messages. And yes, they are still bothering to make reports from time to time telling you to be afraid, be very afraid of this NATO Gladio asset. President Obama returned to the White House this morning from Afghanistan, where he signed a security agreement pledging U.S. support through 2024. Hours after he left Afghanistan, the Taliban set off a bomb in Kabul that killed seven civilians. The president's visit came one year to the day after Navy SEALs killed Osama bin Laden. His terror group, Al-Qaeda, is now run by Ayman al-Zawahiri, a physician and longtime bin Laden deputy. Is Al-Qaeda still a threat? We asked Bob Orr to take a look. The world first met Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri as an angry young man railing in English from a courtroom cell in Cairo. We are here, the real Islamic front. And the real that was 30 years ago when Zawahiri was an Islamic revolutionary in Egypt. He was arrested with hundreds of others for the assassination of Egyptian President Anwar Sadat. After three years in prison, Zawahiri left Egypt for a lifetime of terror. In 1998, he joined forces with Osama bin Laden. As al-Qaeda's number two, Zawahiri was at the core of every major attack, including 9-11. Following bin Laden's killing by U.S. Navy SEALs, Zawahiri seized control. He is as deadly a threat as we faced before. Bruce Rydell, who spent three decades at the CIA chasing al-Qaeda, says Zawahiri wants to tighten his grip on the terror network. Zawahiri, to cement his authority, he has to carry out terror. He has to produce a significant terrorist attack which has his fingerprints on it. So to establish his credentials, his standing in the terror world, he needs to attack. Sooner or later, you can't just talk about terror and expect to be regarded as a terrorist mastermind. You've got to orchestrate terror. But Zawahiri's al-Qaeda, centered in Pakistan, has been battered by relentless drone strikes and may not be capable of another large-scale attack. So Zawahiri has used a dozen audio and video messages since bin Laden's death to inspire strikes by al-Qaeda affiliates and homegrown radicals within the U.S. Juan Zarati, 
who was on the National Security Council of the George W. Bush White House, says Zawahri's propaganda might help the U.S. find him. Anytime he pops his head up uh, like a prairie dog, uh, he can be found or a trace back to him can be found. So the dilemma for Zawahri is he needs to message to stay relevant, but when he messages, he becomes vulnerable. That's right. U.S. officials say if they get a clear shot at Zawahri, they'll take it. Rydell says he suspects Zawahri, like bin Laden, is hiding in a populated center somewhere deep inside Pakistan. Is it important to take Zawahri off the battlefield? Absolutely. This is a resourceful and smart guy, and it's important that we get him as soon as possible. Zawahri lacks bin Laden's charisma, and core al-Qaeda, in fact, is down to a few hundred members. But counterterrorism officials, Scott, say it would be a big mistake to underestimate the Egyptian doctor. Now, there's one other part of the Zawahiri story that I think we should touch on before we wrap things up today, and that's that uh, I think part of the grander idea of this war on terror is that the, the, the idea of the war on terror is changing. We can see it morphing through the way it's being presented in the mainstream right now because some of its main ideas and memes are becoming somewhat less tenable, somewhat more problematic, shall we say, for the official dominant paradigm. And by that, I mean, of course, what we saw in Libya with using the LIFG, which is really part and parcel with the Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, AQIM, and now using and uh, the same jihadis in Syria to try to destabilize that government. I think it's getting to the point where even though you will never see those dots connected in the mainstream media, there's enough of an awareness now that, oh yes, we're using the same terrorists we're supposedly fighting, that I think they don't want to concentrate on Al-Qaeda proper anymore so much. I think that idea is being brushed to the side. Now it's more uh, on a case-by-case -case basis. Anything with AQ in its name, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, is clearly the bad guys, the bad terrorists. But the other terrorists, the LIFG, those kinds of groups, the ones in Libya, the ones, the ones in other countries that are working for our interests in Syria, for example, those, those are the good terrorists. And this is a phenomenon that's been well pointed out in the alternative media. You will never hear a word about it in the mainstream media, but what else is new? But I think it shows a changing of the paradigm. It's sort of the, the narrative is becoming muddier. So there is a chance that whatever Zawahiri, wherever he really is, whatever he's really doing right now, and whoever he's really working for, whether or not they ever resurrect him from the grave to become the mastermind of some next big false flag event, which is actually puppeteered by the people in the intelligence establishment, whether or not that ever happens, whether or not they ever play that card, well, they can always keep that up their sleeve. But they might be trying to introduce new players to the table. But interestingly enough, just as a lot of intelligence agencies tend to recruit people from literally within certain families, uh, well, they like to keep all of the, their operations within the same families, it seems, because who else is now surf surfacing in Egypt as part of a, the, the new uh, rising of the Muslim Brotherhood and the Islamic radicals in Egypt, but Zawahiri's brother. The protest started Tuesday in Cairo, where thousands of hardline Islamists marched on the embassy and tore down the Stars and Stripes, apparently in reaction to an amateur YouTube clip insulting the Prophet Muhammad. Organizing the crowd was Muhammad al-Zawahi, a convicted jihadist and brother of al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahi. Today, the younger brother sat down with Fox News for an exclusive interview about the protests. It has nothing to do with the September 11th, but insulting 1.5 billion of Muslims around the world and the Prophet Muhammad. How can you call for a protest 
about a movie that you haven't seen? I read about the movie. It's merely the title. It's refused by us. If the Egyptian people saw this movie, the protests would explode. Zawahari was released from an Egyptian prison this year and is now working to bring about an Islamic state in Egypt. He says the violence and protests will continue until the makers of the film are punished. And in the Sharia court, if you insult the Prophet Muhammad, you're killed. No, no. Correct. If they do not repent, we will execute them. You know, they really need to hire some new scriptwriters for this whole war on terror because it seems like they're really running out of ideas and characters. But there you go. So Zawahiri's brother is now another one of these players on the geopolitical chessboard. So... This is all extremely interesting, and again, we can only just glance on the top of these issues from uh, the perspective of a short podcast like this, but as always, I'm going to put the links in the show notes for today's episode so that you can go and start exploring this, especially, of course, History Commons, which has just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of references to all sorts of different mainstream and and, uh, establishment pieces of this puzzle which go and indict the the story from the establishment's own words a very again history commons is such a valuable resource i hope people out there are making value uh, making use of it and also of course sibel Edmonds, our third interview extremely important information and the pieces are starting to connect so if you are following this on a weekly basis this third interview again i can't stress enough how important it is if you're not following it start following it and you can start listening from the first interview i will put the links to all three interviews in the show notes for this episode of this podcast so please go and start researching further into this We're going to have to leave it there for today, but I hope that at the very least we've started the conversation and started you down the road of exploring Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri and who he is really working for in a little bit more detail. And uh, please let me know about how your research into this goes and what pieces of the puzzle you can find. And by all means, if anyone can find, for example, documentation of Sadat's wife actually making that claim that Sadat was protected by uh, in London by the UK and which refused to extradite him to Egypt after Sadat's assassination. If anyone can find proof of that interview, for example, or a recording of that interview, I'd be greatly interested to see it or any of the other pieces of the puzzle. As always, you can contact me at CorbettReport.com. The con- Contact form is there on the website, and I'm interested to hear what you guys out there find. We're going to leave it there for today with the proviso and caveat, as always, that this uh, podcast is brought to you by you. So if you value this in- independent alternative media, I do require your support, and I want to thank everyone out there who does support it. And on that note, we'll leave it there for today. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thanking you for joining me, asking you to join me again next week. Zaka, Ryamusai, Jack and number 20, but he did not fly. Ramsey, Ben Alshay, made his money from the honey tree. Kali, 